The clip comes from the HBO series Chernobyl, which dramatizes the 1986 uh, nuclear disaster in Ukraine. A reactor has exploded, and deadly levels of radiation have leaked into the town, killing thousands. Another reactor is about to explode, potentially sending a radiation cloud up into the sky that might cover half of Europe and reach down into Africa. Such an explosion can be averted if workers can get to a valve in time. But the assignment comes with incredible risks. It might be a suicide mission. Millions of lives are at stake, though. It must be done. Government asks for volunteers, and three young men step forward into the fire. The mission is successful, but history records that each one of those three young men actually die from radiation poisoning within two weeks. What would motivate someone to volunteer for such a deadly, maybe even an impossible mission? Duty? Glory? Love of country? And if I were asked to volunteer for such a mission, how would I respond? How would you respond? Would we stand up, state our name, or would we slink back into the chair, hoping to go unnoticed? I wondered these questions as I was studying our passage from the Bible this morning. We are in an extended study of the Old Testament book of Isaiah in our long-term series, Isaiah for Today. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century before Jesus. He was called by God to preach a message of judgment and hope to God's people. Now, Isaiah is a big, complicated book, so we've sort of broken it up into seven mini-series. We just finished our first mini-series last week when we talked about Judah's sin. Uh, Our next mini-series that we're starting this morning is called Man on Fire. And in it, we're going to focus in on Isaiah himself. Who was he? How did he become a prophet? What does it even mean to be a prophet? And the first passage from Isaiah 1 that I want to look at with you as part of this new series is perhaps maybe the most well-known passage in the entire book. Let me read it to you. It comes from Isaiah chapter 6. I'll be reading to you from verse 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth, and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go. 
And tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You might recognize this scene. In it, Isaiah is given a a heavenly vision of the divine council, God and his angels. The scene takes place, we learn, in the final year of King Uzziah's death. With Uzziah's death, Isaiah's nation, Judah, seems to begin its last stretch toward judgment at the hands of its enemies. And as Judah rushes towards destruction as a result of centuries and centuries of sin, God decides that the time is right to send them a prophet to warn them about what's coming up. So, like in Chernobyl, he asks for volunteers. Isaiah stands up. Now, Isaiah's vision is not unique uh, for a prophet. Most of the great prophets of the Bible had some sort of supernatural experience with God. Uh, Moses, you know what Moses Experience. He saw God in a, a burning bush. Uh, Jeremiah saw God or heard God as a, as a youth, and God reached down and touched his lips. Um, uh, Samuel awoke in the middle of the night to God calling him into service. Uh, Paul saw a blinding light on the road to, to Damascus. All the prophets in the Bible had their moment with God. It's almost like God knew that the job he was giving them to do was just too difficult for them to do on their own, and he wanted to personally commission them uh, to propel them forward and even prepare them for the difficulties that lay ahead. So something like this is quite typical for prophets in the Bible. But let's dig into the specific story of Isaiah's vision a bit this morning, because in a way, it stands out from other prophetic calls in the Bible. It's a bizarre and it's a fascinating scene that has much to teach us, even if we are not prophets. Isaiah's experience has a lot to teach us about God's holiness. It has a lot to teach us about God's mercy. And it has a lot to teach us about God's call. God's holiness, God's mercy, and God's call. Let's talk about each this morning. First, Isaiah's vision has a lot to teach us about God's holiness. It teaches us specifically something about God's holiness. It teaches us that God's holiness exposes our moral corruption. As Isaiah is whisked into the throne room of God, he sees sights that we can't even imagine. He sees the Lord on a throne that is so huge that the train of God's robe like fills the temple all around him. He stands tiny before the throne of God. And around the Lord are heavenly creatures flying about called seraphs. The literal Hebrew for seraph is burning ones. He looks up in the sky and he sees burning angels flying around with six wings each. And they are crying out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the whole building shakes. This is hard to imagine. 
burning angels in the sky, voices that make the building shake, a throne with a divine robe that cascades down around you like a ginormous waterfall. Is this what actually heaven is like when we die? Is this what we're going to see? Or is this some sort of metaphorical dream? Or is this some sort of vision that Isaiah is just barely able to communicate using whatever categories there are in his head? We don't really know what this is exactly, vision, dream, reality. Either way, the scene Isaiah witnesses is suffused with something. It is suffused with the holiness of God. That's what the seraphs were singing to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now that formula of holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, that's actually an important one in the, in the Bible. It's so important it has its own separate theological name. It's called the trihagion. Holy, holy, holy. You also hear it in the book of Revelation. And the word holy is repeated there for emphasis. And we do this with language too. Like when you, you know, don't just really need to go to the bathroom, you really, really need to go to the bathroom. In fact, sometimes you don't just really, really need to go to the bathroom. You really, really, really need to go to the bathroom. God isn't just holy. God isn't just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. But what is holiness? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does that mean? What, what, what? (laughs) Holy, holy, holy. What is that? What is holiness? Holiness can mean many things in the Bible. Uh, Holy can mean, in the Bible, it can mean separate, distinct, different than. But in this context, holiness probably refers to God's moral perfection, his moral majesty. God is perfect in every way. There is no moral blemish in him. He's never made a mistake. There's no lie in him. He shines like the purest sun. His outward glory is the manifestation of his moral holiness. And it is this moral holiness that undoes Isaiah as he writes, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When standing at the foot of God's throne, Isaiah finds himself exposed as the sinner he is. Specifically, he frets over his unclean lips. Now, why his unclean lips? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why lips? Why not? Woe is me, I'm a man of an unclean heart. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean fingernails. Why lips? Is it because he's a preacher? I'm a preacher. I have unclean lips. The, the, the sheer weight of all the stupidity that has come out of my lips over the course of my preaching ministry, it embarrasses me. Is it because he's a human being and the sin inside of us comes through our lips? We are sinners of the mouth. Why unclean lips? We actually don't know. But either way, this encounter with God's moral purity serves only to expose his own moral corruption. He knows he does not deserve to be there. He is exposed by the pure light of God. Now, I've never had a vision of God like this. You should know. I've never had a vision of God like this. But I know the feeling. There are a few people in my life who are so morally pure and perfect that I feel uncomfortable being around them. My grandma Ruth was one of these people. My grandma, I've talked to you about my grandma Ruth before. Uh, this is my grandma Ruth. My brother Greg made this picture with all these little stars. We'll just call that her holiness, her radiance. <laughs> and my grandma Ruth died last spring. 
And upon her death, I'm sure she was ushered right to the front of the line. I don't know how that happens, but I'm sure she, she died and they put her in the golf cart and they drove her right to the front of the line. But my grandma was holier than my oldest pair of jeans. And she wasn't judgmental about it, at least not most of the time. She was just filled with goodness. I mean, when I was around her and I would say something sarcastic or rude, she wouldn't even understand it. She was so holy, she didn't understand my sarcasm. Like, she'd look at me like, I don't understand. You sound like mean, but I don't, why, why are you talking? She wouldn't even comprehend. Uh, she was so kind that even the most slightly selfish act just felt inappropriate in her presence. At, at Thanksgiving dinner, when I would be the first to reach for the mashed potatoes, it would feel wrong, like selfish. Like, no, that, not in grandma's presence. Somebody else should take the mashed potatoes. Anybody else with a holy grandma like that? Imagine that times a million. Imagine standing in front of a holy grandma Ruth in all her glory, sitting on her throne with a train of her bathrobe draped all around you. All your bad attitudes, your sarcasm, your selfishness is exposed next to her moral beauty, her holiness, and her glory burns. It's like Boromir in Lord of the Rings when, when he stands before Galadriel, the elf queen, and he's so filled with selfishness and so ashamed of himself that all he can do before Galadriel is cry and whimper. <laughs> Or it's like John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, like, humming towards him, he's like, no, 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 I'm not even fit to untie the thongs of your sandals. God's holiness burns. It makes us whimper and cry. In fact, even the angels can't stand it. Did you notice this detail in the story that the burning seraphs, the burning ones in the sky, have... Uh, flying around the throne, have six wings. Two of the wings are used to fly, and two of the wings are used to cover their eyes, and two of the wings are used to cover their feet. Now, that's a strange image, but it gets even stranger. So you might, I doubt you know this, but uh, in Hebrew, the phrase to cover one's feet is a euphemism. Do you know what a euphemism is? Euphemism is a nice way of saying something you don't want to say. And the phrase, to cover one's feet, is a euphemism to cover one's private parts. I'm not joking. <laughs> Why would the angels be covering their eyes and their private parts? <laughs> this is what they're doing. This is what Isaiah looked up and saw them doing. <laughs> Why would they be doing that? You want to see it again? You can. Why would they be doing that? Because God's glory burns. It'll burn your eyes and it'll burn your jewels. And you have to cover up. This is the Bible, people. The lesson here, you're wondering. The lesson here is that before God's holiness, we all, humans and angels, are vulnerable. Before God's holiness, we don't even understand the depth and the extent of our sin until we come face to face with God and we are exposed. Our most vulnerable parts are exposed. Our secrets, our hidden parts, are exposed before God. Everything is exposed before God. And you got to cover up. 
To be a sinner is to violate God's holiness at the deepest way, and we all do. We are all far more sinful than we can imagine. We are filled with pride and racism and greed and lust and violence. We are not just, we're not just pretty good people who make the occasional mistake. I mean, compared to murderers, that's my, that might be who we are. Oh, I'm a pretty good person. I make the occasional mistake, I mean, but I'm better than that murderer. But is that the comparison that you want to ride on? It is, but that's a comparison worth making. Compared to God, we are slime. We are undone. Have you ever been undone by God's holiness? I mean, really. Have you ever been undone by God's holiness? Have you ever seen yourself for who you really are? Standing before God. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. Get a glimpse we learn from the story, God's holiness exposes our sin. But we learn something else about God's mercy as well. We learn something about God's holiness and God's mercy. We learn that God's mercy can purify us, but painfully. So following Isaiah's undoing at the foot of God's throne, he is not simply kicked out of the throne room, although that would have been appropriate. Get this knave out of my sight. God could have said that. But Isaiah is there by God's invitation. Isaiah is there for a reason. God brought him there to expose him as unclean so that he might be purged, purified. This required an act of mercy and a painful one, as the prophet recounts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So in this vision, there's an altar in the throne room. Now, in the Old Testament temple, in the Jewish temple, uh, there was an altar, right? And there was a fi- the priests were assigned to keep a fire burning there. And on this fire, they would burn the sacrifices uh, continuously. And this sacrificial system with this fire on this altar, was a, God gave it to them, the Israelites, to symbolize or to represent, to remind them of his justice and his mercy. So he is just, so sin needs to be punished, but he's also merciful. And he made a way for a sacrifice to be made so that they wouldn't have to suffer eternally. These sacrifices uh, prefigured uh, the, the sacrifice of Jesus later on. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. From this burning altar, here in this scene, from this burning altar, one of the seraphs, one of the burning angels in the sky, grabs a pair of tongs and picks up a red hot coal from the altar. And then he takes it, this, this blind burning angel in the sky who's covering his private parts, takes it and like flies towards Isaiah. Can't see. And Isaiah's there. What's happening right now? Imagine a burning angel, eyes covered, private parts covered, with a burning coal heading towards you, and he can't even fathom what's going on. And what does the angel do? He burns his lips. That's what he does. He burns his lips. Why? Why? Well, Isaiah just said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Good thing he didn't say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean eyeballs. Or other parts of his body. Why would the angel do this? Well, in the Old Testament, fire symbolizes things. Fire symbolized purification. 
Fire purifies. This act symbolizes the forgiveness of God who atones for Isaiah's sin through his sacrificial love. To atone uh, means to make amends for. Another theological word to use here is that he's being sanctified. To be sanctified means to be made pure, to be made holy. And in this act, God removes the guilt and the sin from Isaiah, and he replaces it with goodness and godliness, but it is a painful act, and that's what's being communicated in the story, the pain of it. Isaiah is purged of his uncleanness and made ready for his preaching ministry, but it hurts, and it has to hurt. Guilt and sin are intertwined in our lives. You can't just excise guilt and sin from your life like a benign tumor that's just like right there, cut and pull. It's not that easy. The removal of sin and guilt from your life is not a two-hour outpatient procedure. Sin and guilt in your life is like a malignant tumor that reaches into every cell of your body. It's a, life of, it's a lifetime of surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. And a lot of you I know know how painful that is. But it has to be. I've been watching uh, House lately. Any House fans? Dr. House? Yes, Gregory House, he's the brilliant TV doctor who runs the diagnostic department at Princeton Plainsboro Hospital. But he has no bedside manner. (laughs) Uh, When he's doing a procedure on somebody, he just shoots straight with them and sometimes a little bit too straight. He's like, this is going to hurt like a lot. Like you might rather die than endure what I'm going to do to you. He doesn't say like, you know, think about something else. Count to 10, count back down from 10. Or, you know, you might feel some pressure. (laughs) He comes at them with the tongs and the coal. This is going to hurt. But it has to hurt. There's no other way to be a Christian than the painful way. The hard times we go through, the long nights, the crying, the frustration, that's all painful. But God can use it for our good if we let him. Some of us don't want to let him, though. Some of us are pain-averse. We think we can be easy Christians. God comes at us with the fiery coal, and we're like running around the throne room, avoiding the, the coal that's like coming right at us. The angel's like, the blind angel. And we're avoiding, avoiding the coal. We spend our entire Christian lives doing this. God gives us something to do. We're like, nope, too painful. God says, I want you to be generous, like radically generous. I want you to tithe and maybe even do more than that. Nope, too painful. God says, I want you to forgive that person who hurt you like a long time ago that I know you still think about. Nope, too painful. God says, I want you to have that really difficult conversation with that person on the other side of the political divide that is your brother, sister in Christ that I know you don't really like. Like, no, too painful. God says, I want you to just be st- stay married and like work on it. Like, no, too painful. God says, I want you to break up with your girlfriend because I know that it's not a holy relationship and you just had to do that. No, too painful. There's no other way to be a Christian other than the hard way. Some of us make that mistake. Others of us make another mistake. We conclude that the hard times that we face in life are the result of God's wrath, not his mercy. We can't imagine a loving God would let our lives become so miserable, but sometimes hard times are evidence of God's mercy. God knows that suffering is oftentimes the best way to get through to us. Suffering is how we grow the most. As the author of Hebrews says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
My question for you on this point is, how is God searing the impurity out of you through suffering? How is he purging you of sin through the pain of confession, through the everyday struggles which teach you trust and perseverance? God wants to purify you to do his work, but it has to hurt We learn about God's holiness, we learn about God's mercy, and lastly, we learn something about God's call. We learn that God's call is one of judgment with a seed of hope. After Isaiah has his lips and his life seared, he is able to hear the voice of God. Apparently, previous to this, he couldn't hear God, but in his... um, in his sanctified state, he can hear what God is saying, and he hears God ask, who will go? Isaiah, ever the eager beaver, raises his hand, here am I, over here, I got it, I'm your man, who's going to go? This guy's going to go. But I don't think Isaiah actually knows what he's just volunteered for. In fact, I, I know for a fact that he doesn't know what he's volunteered for. The plant workers in uh, Chernobyl, they knew what they were up against. They knew they would likely die. They volunteered anyway. Isaiah volunteers first and then finds out what he's just signed up to do. He's like Mary and Pippin in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. When Frodo and Sam agree, okay, we will, we will take the ring, and Mary and Pippin run in. Oh, we're going to go too. Where are we going? Oh, we're going to go to Mount Doom and drop the ring in a big volcano. Oh, didn't know that's what we signed up for. Isaiah doesn't know what he's volunteering for here. But he just, I'm a guy. So God tells him, oh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is an interesting message to preach. God tells Isaiah to go close the eyes and ears of his people. Keep the people ignorant. Preach my word so nobody responds. The last thing I want, God says, is for my people to repent. To quote Scooby-Doo, this is not how they teach you to preach in seminary. I don't know if I've been to seminary twice. This was not on the syllabus. How to make things impossible to hear. Well, we have to remember, so what's going on? We have to remember the context here. This is not an isolated moment. For hundreds of years, God has been pleading with his people to live righteous lives. As Schuyler said last week, he blessed them to be a blessing. He blessed them immeasurably to be a blessing. But they have ignored him for generations. They have taken advantage of his grace. They have committed heinous sins against each other and the poor. God has had enough. God is merciful, but he does have his limits. He tells Isaiah to preach a message of judgment, not of grace, because, here's this crazy, if he preaches God's grace, the people might repent and God will have to forgive them because God is by nature forgiving. And God's being sarcastic here, right? If the people repent and God will have to forgive them because he's a forgiving God. This is what he does. If you repent, I'm going to have to forgive you because I'm forgiving. But here's the thing. I know you don't mean it. You haven't meant it for centuries. So don't give them that chance. Tell them their time is up. No second chances. That's a tough message to preach. Which leads Isaiah to ask a question. 
for how long must I preach this message? <laughs> how long do I have to preach this message that you're out of chances? That's a good question. I have wondered that question myself. How long must I preach to these people, God? <laughs> I mean, not, uh, not you, a different church. <laughs> yeah. And God answers. Well, since you asked, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Oh, that's how long. Until the land is laid waste and everyone is gone. That's a long time. That's apparently how long it would take for God's wrath against his people to be appeased. Until the houses are destroyed and the fields ravaged. God knows here that he needs to start over, basically. Judah and Israel have not kept their side of the deal, so he needs to start over, and he will. As God goes on, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So God is telling Isaiah that when judgment comes, most of Judah will be exiled. They will be exiled to Babylon, uh, their captors. Perhaps a tenth of them will be left behind. That's what he says. 90% of you are going to leave. About a tenth of you are going to be behind. But you're going to die too. The the land is going to be laid waste. The land of Judah will be a wasteland. It will be littered with stumps, stumps of oak trees. It will look like that devastating scene in the Lorax, with the Lorax standing on top of all the stumps, surveying acres of land with all the trees cut down. This will be Judah. That's Isaiah. The land will be cut down. All that will remain will be the stumps. Preach that message for that long, until all that remain are stumps. Okay. Tough message to preach for that long. Preach my wrath. Preach my hatred. But here's the thing. That must be our message. Yes, our God is merciful, but our God is also holy. In fact, our God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He hates what we have done to his beautiful earth. He hates what we've done to each other. He hates what we've done to ourselves. For our sin, we must be judged. And we will be. We will be judged in death, who is our enemy, our Babylon. God will remove his hand of protection, and we will all die. We will all be judged. Death will chop us down until we are a wasteland littered with stumps. Not a pleasant message to preach. Isaiah might not have volunteered for the task if he'd known that was the message he had preached. Uh, I might not have volunteered for the task if I had known that that was the message I was going to have to preach. Judgment is coming. We're all going to die. But that's not the only thing we're called to preach. You see, buried inside this message of judgment at the very end of the passage is a tiny actual seed of hope. Buried inside one of those stumps, Isaiah says, will be a seed. That's what he says. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. A holy seed, he says, will be the stump in the land. Holy seed will be the stump in the land. What's that about? It's an image of life from death. You know that not all stumps are actually dead. Sometimes you cut a tree down, and it sprouts again. There's actually a cemetery behind my house uh, filled with stumps where trees once stood. A big 80-year-old tree will fall down, and the cemetery is too cheap or lazy to replace it, so they just cut it. But sometimes, ever so slowly, what happens? 
the stump sprouts. Uh, I took a picture of one last spring. Took this picture on Easter. I'm giving you a second to make the connection. Have you made the connection? Easter. I was walking around the cemetery, serving the landscape. Death was everywhere. Headstones. Stumps. And I saw a stump sprouting. The cemetery was actually, the whole cemetery was coming alive. Trees were starting to bloom and flower. Grass was turning green. And this stump was sprouting from its holy seed. Not everything that appears dead is dead. Judah will be judged. Judah will die. But buried deep within the stump will be a seed. Not just a seed, a holy seed. Not just a holy seed. A holy, holy, holy seed. A seed of God's moral purity. A seed that will sprout and grow into a new tree, a new forest, a new nation. Hopefully you know that Christians understand this holy seed to be the person of Jesus Christ. Sure enough, Jesus was born centuries later, He came into a land ravaged by death and dictators. People saw his miracles and his love. It gave them hope, hope that God was still with them, hope that God still had a plan for them. Sadly, what did Jesus' enemies decide to do? They decided to kill him. They decided to chop him down. They buried him in a grave. They rolled a stone across the opening to seal him in the earth. But not everything that looks dead is actually dead. Maybe you heard that Jesus rose from the dead. His stump sprouted. Now his stump stump has grown into a forest of believers around the world. These believers, us, we've been rescued from our sin. We have seen the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. We've been exposed as sinners. We've been purified in Jesus Christ. Having been exposed as sinners, we now have the Holy Spirit working painfully in our lives to purge us of our sin and our bad habits. God is using the pains and the toils of life to transform us, but now he's looking for someone to send. He's looking for someone to head back into the reactor because the world needs to know. The world needs to know that God's judgment is coming, but that they can be saved, sanctified in Jesus Christ. Millions of lives are at stake. The world needs to know. Not a fun job. We might be hated. We might be killed by people, by radiation, but it must be done. That's the way the guy says it. It must be done. And so he's asking, who will go? Who will go? Whom shall I send? How will you answer? Will you sit still in your chairs, hoping that God doesn't see you? Or will you rise and stand and state your name? Here am I. Send me, this guy, into the fire. Which brings us to communion. We practice communion on the third week of the month here at Rooftop. In our understanding of communion, it is a symbolic reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are as family gathered around the dinner table, celebrating how we are who we are. We are who we are because of what Jesus did on the cross. When we eat from the bread, or in this case, the little tasteless wafer, we're reminded of his body broken for us. When we drink from the cup, we're reminded of his blood poured out for us. 
In dying on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that we owe to God because of our sin. He took our guilt. He took our guilt. He gave us his righteousness. And now we are at peace with God, ready to spend eternity with him. But we've got some work to do before that happens. The world must know about this. The world must know everything Jesus did. Here at Rooftop, we practice open communion, which means anybody can participate, anybody who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus, who believes in Jesus as a unique son of God, has been baptized by water and spirit, and has repented of their sin, can join us. So if you would, go ahead and take your self-serve communion cup, peel back the top layer. Take the wafer, eat it, remembering the words of Jesus. This is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Now peel back the next layer, drink the juice. Remembering the words of Jesus, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah's vision. Thank you for Isaiah's painful vision. Sort of an act of mercy that he he was burned by your holiness. I can't imagine being in that position. But we want to be burned too. We want to be set aflame. We want to be men and women on fire. So that our sin and guilt can be purged from us so we can be ready to go back into the reactor preach a message of judgment and hope to a world that needs to hear it I thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word to be to have our holiness exposed all our secrets all our private parts it's all exposed in your presence you can't really cover up you see everything but you need to and we need to know that so that we can be purified. Give us courage as we head back out into the world to share the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and live forever. We close our prayer time this morning, Father, by praying together the words of the Lord's Prayer, words that Jesus gave his disciples to pray together words that we will pray with them, words that are on the screen for those of us who don't know them. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. 